welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, and awakening. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and this episode is the second in a series of conversations with my friend and meditation teacher, Shinzen Young. Shinzen Young is an American mindfulness teacher and neuroscience research consultant. His systematic approach to categorizing, adapting, and teaching meditation, known as unified mindfulness, has resulted in collaborations with Harvard Medical School, Carnegie Mellon University, and the University of Vermont in the burgeoning field of contemplative neuroscience. You can learn more about Shinzen on his website, shinzen.org, and check out his new book by the title, The Science of Enlightenment. And I'd just like to make one note here before we begin. As a longtime audio producer, I make every effort to give you the highest sound quality possible on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Despite my best efforts and the valiant work of my audio engineer, Stephen McNamara, there were unavoidable technical difficulties in this recording, and those resulted in it not sounding very good for the first 30 minutes or so. After that, the sound quality improves a lot, and I think the first 30 minutes is very interesting. I didn't want to cut it just because it sounded a little, or maybe a lot, not so good. So please bear with us for that first half an hour. It sounds quite a bit better after that. And now, without further ado or disclaimers, I give you the episode that I call Enlightenment's Evil Twin. Hello, Shinzen. Welcome back. Excellent. I'm feeling especially lucky to have you back on the program. As you may know, I've gotten a tremendous amount of positive feedback about our first conversation together. So it's great to be doing a second one here. And I wanted to jump right into the deep end. Something that occurs to me is that you have an unusual amount of personal experience teaching people to meditate. We live in a society that, partially due to your work and the work of others, is now overflowing with mindfulness teachers and mindfulness gurus of various stripes. And these teachers have a widely divergent depth of practice and very different levels of ability as teachers, too. But what we don't have is many individuals such as yourself who have both decades of deep meditation practice, and also decades of experience teaching other people. So because you have this unique position, something that occurs to me to ask you is, what do you see other teachers out there, to put it bluntly, getting wrong? What do you see as the deficiencies of mindfulness as it's currently being taught here in the West? Yes, very interesting question. First, let me make a little disambiguation of how I think of the word mindfulness. I like to use the English word mindfulness to mean contemplative practice co-evolving with science. Perhaps A more specific term might be modern mindfulness. So modern mindfulness for me is contemplative practice 
co-evolving with science. So contemplative practice is very broad. Contemplative practice exists east, west. It exists in traditional cultures, prehistoric, tribal cultures. It's very broad, but I see it as a unity because I can look at any contemplative practice and analyze it in terms of certain fundamental dimensions. The core skills that are developed in contemplative practice explicitly or implicitly are concentration, power, sensory clarity, and equanimity. So this gives me a framework to think of all contemplative practice within a sort of unified perspective. I like to use the term modern mindfulness for approaching contemplative practice from that unified perspective, but also the word modern implies that there is a cross-fertilization with science. Science has something to bring to the table that helps contemplative practice evolve. Contemplative practice has something it brings to the table that helps science evolve. So I see this cross-fertilization. I've been recently referring to that as modern mindfulness. I understand this is not uh, an answer to your question, but I just wanted to clarify some terminology before launching in. So when I look at people that are teaching contemplative practice and using the M word, to describe it. And in this case, the M word is not meditation. The word is mindfulness. So broadly, people are teaching practices that are in some way or another being linked to the word mindfulness. Now, I've tried to be very explicit about what I would mean by mindfulness. Other people are using mindfulness in other ways. But if you were to ask me do I have a single point looking at the whole uh, spectrum of people who are using the M word, the mindfulness word, and teaching? Could I point to something that could be improved and probably needs to be improved? Yeah, there would be something. There's something that jumps up. And it has to do with the issue of liberating experience. So I like to think of a modern mindfulness teacher as a kind of device that transforms one thing into another. <laughs> I know that sounds very enigmatic. I think of myself as a device. I'm a device, and I have a purpose in the world. And when I perform that purpose, I'm very happy. And it's a transformation job. As a modern mindfulness teacher, and I'm putting it within that context, my job is to transform small happy into big happy. So let me explain what I mean. And all of this is a preamble to directly answering your question. 
for a modern mindfulness teacher, the people that are likely going to be your students, your clients, your customers, if you will, they are probably going to initially come to you with a rather specific and circumscribed set of goals. And it may just be one thing. They may come to you because they've heard that mindfulness can improve their tennis game or help with their lower back pain or help them perform better in school sports or be an adjunct to their psychotherapy or, 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 etc., etc., etc. So they're likely to come to you with a rather circumscribed goal, and they're going to describe that goal in a certain language. The way I think of, once again, a modern mindfulness teacher is that you internalize the language that they've given you for their goal. And you're able to understand how their small goal, that's what I mean by the small happy. Usually it's a relatively small thing that they want. You're able to understand how that specific goal relates to all other forms of happiness, including what I would call the deepest forms of happiness. Now, the deepest forms of happiness are related to two things, liberation and admirable action. And admirable action contains within it, for our purposes, service and other things like having good character. So basically, there's getting over the self and then there's refining the self as you carry yourself in the world, and as you progressively more and more live to serve. So those are the deepest forms of happiness. And they're on a kind of grid that I have, a periodic table of happiness elements. So often the person that comes to you is going to want a fairly superficial and limited form of happiness. Now, my thing is, is that things like improving your tennis game or having a more fulfilling sex life are legitimate applications of mindfulness. They're absolutely legitimate, but they represent part of a relatively superficial aspect of happiness. So a modern mindfulness teacher listens to what the student wants incorporates the language they use and understands how what they want relates to all other forms of human happiness. It fits in a taxonomy. Furthermore, the mindfulness skills, the core skills, concentration, clarity, equanimity, and specific mindfulness techniques such as focus in, focus out, focus on everything, working with spaciousness, expansion, contraction, what have you. The mindfulness general skills and the mindfulness specific techniques, which offer strategies. 
mindfulness skills and strategies will allow that student to improve the form of happiness they're asking you for. But what the modern mindfulness teacher understands is that however limited or superficial the specific request is, it has ontologically has a relationship to all the other forms of happiness. They fit in a very nice little matrix. Furthermore, the modern mindfulness teacher understands how the generic skills and the specific techniques that that teacher is going to impart to the student. The teacher understands how those same skills and techniques are applicable to all the other forms of happiness. And gradually, in an organic way, well, I shouldn't maybe even say gradually, at an appropriate pace, the modern mindfulness teacher broadens the student's goals by pointing out to them how the same skills and strategies, by strategies I mean the different ways of focusing. See, a meditation technique sort of has two sides. On one hand, it's an exercise that builds concentration, clarity, equanimity. On the other hand, it's sort of a strategy that can be applied for specific things. When I speak of skills and strategies, this is what I'm talking about. So the modern mindfulness teacher understands deeply how the skills and strategies that they impart to the student to help improve the small happy will improve all of the forms of happy, including the deepest forms of happy, and at an appropriate pace. Because for some people, it might be pretty quick. For other people, it might take a number of years. But at an appropriate pace, without trying to push the river, the modern mindfulness teacher or coach extends the student's goals from the small happy that they started with to the big happy, which is the entire matrix, including the deeper forms of happiness. And the deeper forms of happiness involve transcending the limited identity and also involve improving behavior and service. The question that's coming up for me with what you're saying is, of course, it's interesting and powerful that these, let's say, tactical and topical areas that students typically want improvement in their happiness can lead them through proper instruction into deeper forms of happiness and perhaps all the way to big forms of liberation. I'm curious, though, about the potential for a gotcha in there or even something that might begin shading into the realm of unethical. And it comes up when, let's say, someone comes to you and wants to improve their leadership skills in their uh, corporate job. And you begin teaching them these mindfulness skills that are indeed going to make them a better leader. And yet 
you know full well that if they keep practicing this, they're going to start digging into some pretty heavy stuff about impermanence, about no-self, about suffering. They're going to start having liberating insights if they do these practices over time with any kind of regularity. And yet, if you don't say that up front or let them know what they're getting into, can't that be seen as a little bit non-consensual? And to put an even finer point on it, I mean, there's a way that sometimes doing deep meditation can be upsetting or can cause someone's life to suddenly go on a new track. And I'm just curious if you feel like there's any further form of consent that is needed before we begin taking people to that level. Absolutely. I think that those things should be introduced as is appropriate. But as you know, these might come up for some people almost immediately. That's right. So that's why I'm saying as is appropriate. My ideal for how mindfulness should be taught is to have at least one personal coach. And it can't always work out that way, but that is what I think is the best way to go about spreading it. So it's the job of that personal coach to monitor these kinds of things, to constantly be looking for windows and walls. And by that, you mean um, windows of opportunity for deepening and walls, which are challenges and blockages, yeah. So in a sense, it is impossible to have fully informed consent for enlightenment because it's both better than and not nearly as good as people are going to imagine it to be, no matter how you try to describe it. However, I think you have fulfilled your ethical duty yeah, to your student if you just do your best to describe to them both the payoffs and the challenges of doing the deeper work. So you have to sort of see how you're going to introduce these things. But I think that it is absolutely imperative if there's a probability that the student is going to go into emptiness, no self, either because they're showing some of the signs that they're moving in that direction or because they're doing specific focus strategies that would tend to move them in that direction or they've specifically requested to move in that direction. If a person is going in the direction of whatever you want to call it, no self, true self, <laughs> emptiness, oneness, elastic identity, call it whatever you want. They should know not only the uncomfortable things that they might have to go through, like confusion, weird physical sensations, intense emotional sensations, etc. They should know not only about those, which are sort of standard walls, but they should know that their 
can be a process of integrating the emptiness. And that can be a challenge. That's a whole training in and of itself. It's one thing to lead a person to emptiness. It's quite another thing to lead a person through emptiness into a stage where the emptiness has been fully integrated and become a source of deep fulfillment, connectivity, positive behavior change, and service. All of these are part of integrating the experience of emptiness. And some people don't need to do much training to integrate emptiness. It just happens, either suddenly or gradually. They're in the no-self or the no-world <laughs> and no-self or the source, the ground. Like I say, call it whatever you want. Either suddenly or gradually they're there and they get it. And it's immediately something that brings a sense of fulfillment, connection, love, and empowerment to refine your personhood. It's just there for them, and they don't need any special training. However, very often, people actually have to be taken through a process whereby the experience of emptiness is systematically integrated into their life, leading to the list of good results that I just mentioned. And the amount of input that they may need can vary from a little bit, which is quite common, to a pretty substantial amount, which is not uncommon, to an enormous amount, which fortunately is very uncommon. But there is a spectrum with regards to the amount of specific training that a person needs to have what I call an integrated experience of emptiness, aka no self. And by integrated, I mean the things I just mentioned. It's a source of fulfillment. It's a source of motivation, positive behavior, service, love, connection, and so forth. So there's a spectrum with regards to the amount of specific training. Some people at one extreme don't need any. And then there's a whole lot of intermediate shades. Now the most extreme case at the other end of the spectrum is when they go into the classic Dark Knight slash DPDR. That is Enlightenment's evil twin, in a sense. That requires, in my experience, an enormous amount of training and attention and often takes actually quite a long time, years in certain cases, to get to the point where, yes, indeed, they have now integrated the void and they're very, very happy campers. So there's this spectrum of attention from the coach that the student may need after they get into a deep and abiding and clear experience of 
emptiness of self, emptiness of world. And we absolutely should let people know about that up front. Yeah, I think that there's actually a number of interesting points in there. One is that the goals that the person shows up with initially, for example, wanting to be a more effective leader, at a later stage as they go deeper might get absolutely deconstructed into meaninglessness. They might find that that goal doesn't matter to them at all anymore. And that has to be talked about as a possibility. However, it's also a possibility that they may become more and more and more effective as an enlightened business leader. And so you just have to, I would say, adumbrate the whole spectrum, meaning give them a shadow, an outline of what could happen And that's as close as you can get to informed consent. Yes, that makes sense to me. I have a number of coaching clients who are both highly effective, very self-actualized business leaders who also understand about awakening and those possibilities and may be somewhere on the spectrum of awakening. And they often ask me, if I go further in this, is it going to somehow derail me or make me unable to work? Will I have to spend a year in a monastery integrating this and so on? I mean, this is actually not that atypical of a question. You just address that fairly clearly. Yeah, I could add some detail. I think a good model is physicians. What a doctor is going to do, if you ask them, hey, doc, what's going to happen? They're not going to tell you what's going to happen. They're going to say, well, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen, and here are the probabilities. That's the way medicine currently works. And that's reasonable. That's fair. So I think you can say things like, I'm not going to say that you couldn't get derailed and need a year of, you know, personal attention, I can say that that's unlikely. More likely is that, and even more likely is this. And then the likely is based on what you know from your teaching and other people's teaching. So I always just give people some very broad probabilities just to give them a sense. You know, when you get on a plane, could you crash? Yes. How likely is it? actually very unlikely, but could happen. Uh, The taxi cab ride over, more dangerous, okay? So people have some sense of proportion, I guess. And it's going to be a real spitball, you know, ballpark, order of magnitude approximation. But I can point to examples of deeply liberated, highly effective business people. And so I can say there are role models for people who have pretty much completed the liberation process and still manage multi-million dollar operations, like Mr. Goenka, for example, with his business empire. I point to examples. I give a broad sense of the relative likelihood of things. 
Of course, you're correct. In almost every case, it's going to go perfectly well or relatively well and lead to very positive outcomes. People tend to have negativity bias, however, and they get very concerned or fascinated by the problems that may arise. So I'm curious when you uh, mentioned that at the far end of the spectrum, it can be difficult if you can describe what that looks like and what the effective strategies for working with that are. It's interesting how people use terms. So mindfulness at one time was just a translation of the Pali word sati or satipatthana, And now it means whatever the hell someone decides it's going to mean because it sounds cool and that's how you sell yourself. I can't tell you how many times when I tell people that I'm a mindfulness teacher, they tell me that they are also a mindfulness teacher. And what can I say? I don't know whether to laugh or cry. I try not to be harsh, but I think you get the general idea. So, word becomes popular and then it starts to become used in ways that are convenient. There's a term dark night, noche oscura in Spanish. And it comes from the Spanish, from San Juan de la Cruz, St. John of the Cross, who was not a Buddhist meditator. He was a Christian. But he came to a direct experience of the divine nothingness, but had some real challenge in integrating that. And he talked about the dark night of the senses, which is working through your cravings and aversions, basically. That's a struggle everyone understands. But then, what about when you've worked through your cravings and aversions, and now you've experienced God directly, but it turns out that God's a little less something than, as a good Catholic, you thought he, she, it (laughs) was going to be. (laughs) So then that took some integration, and that struggle he called the dark night. The Buddhists actually do have an analogous term for emptiness as a bad trip. It's called falling into the pit of the void. However, what has happened now is that the term dark night has come into the Buddhist world. It would be good if we use that term to mean a deep and abiding experience of emptiness that you're having a lot of difficulty integrating. It would be good if that was the technical term for that, or put in more Buddhist language, It would be good if the question, how do you make it through the, quote, dark night, is the same as how do you make it through the pit of the void. But now what I've noticed is that people are using the term dark night to mean any kind of challenge, any kind of difficulty, any bad doo-doo that percolates up to the surface as you're practicing. I have people now telling me, I'm going through the dark night. Okay, describe it to me. Well, when I sit and meditate, I get confused and all these emotions come up. Well, okay, if you want to call that the dark night, but I'm going to just call that a certain kind of sensory arising. Anyway, I just wanted to clarify these terms. Yeah, it's very important because wherever you see a lot of heat in discussions about contemplative practice, 
usually it's been my experience that that comes about through an imprecision in definitions and use of language. And yeah, it comes about through people's egos also. But they'll get over their egos if they keep practicing long enough. Practice takes care of the ego that's firing these contentions. But it's a different training that takes care of the lack of speaking precisely. Anyway, whether we want to call it the dark night or the pit of the void, I do have a standard procedure, and it's both prophylactic and remedial. We were talking about informed consent, okay? I actually don't run into the problem of the pit of the void or the dark night with my students very much. I won't say that it's never happened. It certainly has happened. But it doesn't seem to happen a lot. And I'm not sure, but I think part of that might be because I talk about it up front. And for me, the process that would be an intervention once they've fallen into the pit of the void can be introduced early on in practice as a prophylactic or a preventative measure to militate against that happening. You know, I like to sometimes be a little whimsical about things. So I sometimes personify categories and procedures with names just for the fun of it, (laughs) for myself. So I have a four-point procedure that both will tend to prevent the dark night or pit of the void, but also can be implemented as something to do if a person falls into the pit of the void. And I call it Johnny, (laughs) in my own language. That's Johnny Mercer, who was a popular songwriter in the 40s. And one of his songs goes, you got to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, latch on to the affirmative, don't mess with Mr. In-Between. Now, the lyrics of that mean something for that song. It's based on a Christian preacher that he heard. But I interpret those four in a very, very specific way. The pit of the void is Mr. In-Between. In between what? Well, in between suffering due to the somethingness of the world and safety, fulfillment, love, personal refinement, and liberation. So, in between being caught in the somethingness of self and world and then this integrated void, you can have various degrees of Mr. In Between. The really problematic mystery in between is the pit of the void slash dark night. Okay, so accentuate the positive. That's part of the training to interpret the nothingness in ways that lead to fulfillment and other goodies. As I say, in many cases, no particular training is needed. People get it right away. It's like, They see no self, they see the emptiness, and it's like, this is as good as it gets. But if they need training, what would it be? Well, 
Accentuate the positive says selectively attend to aspects of the emptiness that are fulfilling. So what would that be? There can be tranquility, and you can train yourself to systematically to enjoy the tranquility of the emptiness, and it becomes more and more of a source of fulfillment. There can be an awareness that you can always go into the emptiness if you are facing a mind-body state that's untenable. You're sick or you're injured or you're developing Alzheimer's, whatever. There's the knowledge that there's this place of refuge. And you can train yourself to relate to it that way. So there's a sense of refuge. You can be fulfilled by the tranquility. You have a place of refuge. The emptiness or nothingness is a kind of dimensionless point that holds together all of creation. It's the omphalos mundorum, I guess. My Latin might be off. The belly button of all worlds. There's omphalos mundi, that's the belly button of the world. But there's the belly button of all worlds. And that means it's a direct connector to everything. (laughs) The one nothing connects the 10 trillion somethings, or maybe the infinite somethings. And learning to tune into the connectivity of the void is a goodie. It leads to fulfillment. These are all accentuate the positive things. What else? Well, there's the flow of the senses, but there's also the flow of the motor circuits. So the void is bouncy. When it manifests through see, hear, feel, there is an intrinsic delicious, dynamic, just-happeningness that perfuses each moment of see, hear, feel. And tuning into that at the sensory side makes life very, very interesting. You have the fascination of the newborn because everything is new. It's like coming out of God moment by moment. That exact same just-happeningness quality is present in our motor circuits. In each thing, it proceeds, follows, and pervades each thing we do say or think. And learning how to detect the spring of the air. (laughs) I think that was a book by Robert Boyle, one of the first physical chemists. He talked about the spring of the air. I might have the history a little bit wrong. There's a springiness that the emptiness has that is also in our motor circuits. I have a whole series of techniques designed just to point that out to people. Auto-move, (laughs) auto-speak, auto-think. Our actual strategies, focus strategies for pointing people in that direction. So learning to appreciate the spring, the bounce, the Zen bounce of the void as it manifests speech and body motion and thought within you as motor activities. That's a positive. And that is one of the things that puts the bounce back in your step. 
after you've worked through doing things because you're driven by fear and desire, why do you still do things? Well, you do them in part just to do them, <laughs> like a little child. So just like you deconstruct the self step by step, your sight is deconstructing yourself. So that's deconstructing the somethingness of self, but turns out that the same process deconstructs the somethingness of the world. So now where do you stand? So then you have to reconstruct a new empty self. And it's systematic and it takes a while, just like the deconstruction will often take a while. It depends on the person. But well, I guess it's that's the same way. Some people get a rapid deconstruction. Some people, it's a very gradual process. Some people rapidly integrate the void. Other people, it's a more gradual process. Once you've deconstructed the self as thing, you reconstruct the self as nothing. <laughs> uh, it's not a noun now, it's a verb, but it's important that that verb be grammatical and eloquent. So you get the bounce in your motor circuits and it's fun. You're like a little child that just jumps in the puddle of water just because it just happens. That's what you do. And you take care of your life and to the best of your ability serve others from love uh, just because it just happens. But that takes training also. And part of the training is to learn to appreciate the bounce. So I've just given you a long list and there's more. And that's just accentuate the positive. Eliminate the negative. Well, eliminate is tricky here. There can be parts of you that aren't empty yet. And the parts that aren't empty might be freaking out because of the emptiness. That's in fact wherein a large part of the problem lies. It's like, I'm not satisfied. I wanted more. Is this all there is to God? Well, no. There's a little bit more to God than that. What's that little bit more? Well, you know that experience that you just reported of wanting God to be more? That's part of you that's not yet empty, that's reacting. Or maybe you're frightened, or maybe you're pissed off all the time. I've had people go into the dark night and have a lot of fear. That's pretty common. But some people get a lot of anger going. And some people get disappointment. They expected more of enlightenment. The thing is, whether it's fear or dissatisfaction or abiding irritability at everything, that's the part that's not yet empty. There's still some something. And you, quote, eliminate that. The eliminate is in air quotes because, strictly speaking, there's three ways to eliminate. The problem with the part of you that's not yet empty and freaking out at the empty. There's three basic strategies. You can turn towards it, you can turn away from it, or you can alternate those two strategies. I usually advocate turning towards it in these cases. Typically, that involves using the focus-in technique. And when I say eliminate, what I'm really saying is love it to death. So fully experience the part of you that's freaking out 
at the emptiness that it also becomes empty. Now, you could well say, oh my God, that will leave me no place to stand. To which I would say, just don't stand in that, oh my God. That's the part of you that is not yet empty. (laughs) In any event, you might say, well, what will happen then? What if I deconstruct all of my freak out about the emptiness? Well, I would say maybe a lot of things, but let me just say two things. One is welcome to the world of deep faith, which I take as the antithesis to the world of entrenched belief. There's deep faith, entrenched belief. Faith and belief sound similar, but they are distinguished in Hebrew, amun, amunah, and in some other languages. Anyway, welcome to the world of deep faith is one thing I would say. The other thing I would say to someone who would say, where is this going to lead me standing? I would say one of the greatest masters of all time, Master Lin Ji or Rinzai, talked about Wu Wei Zhan Ren, the authentic person with no fixed position. You will become an authentic person without status, without a place to stand. (laughs) So, accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. Latch on to the affirmative. I take that technically to point to specific nurture positive techniques, like I call them see good, hear good, feel good, be good. It's like an extension of the notion of loving kindness to broader domains. If people are interested, they can look at my material, but it's one of my four quadrants, the nurture positive. You can think of it as generalized loving kindness, but it also involves cognitive reframing and visualizing positive behaviors or skillful actions, etc. So you intentionally use cognitive phrases, mantras, body emotion, and different combinations to create positive sanskaras around the issues of behavior, cognition, emotion, and so forth. So that's a sort of reconstructing of positive go-to habits. I call that latch on to the affirmative. So accentuate the positive has a very technical meaning for me. Eliminate the negative, also, once again, very technical meaning. Latch on to the affirmative, same thing. Don't mess with Mr. In-between means, in general, the above three things are going to help you get through. But more specifically, I take that fourth thing to mean that you may not be able to do the three things I just mentioned on your own. It's highly probable that you're going to need a support structure, one or perhaps a team of people that have a track record in leading people through the dark night slash pit that are going to keep you on track for the three things that I mentioned. So the don't mess with Mr. In-Between, I take as a reminder that you may need to create a support structure. And depending on how severe 
the dark night is. At the most severe case, and once again, thank God, thank the void, thank nature, the severe cases are relatively rare. But we have to talk about them because they can happen. It's relatively rare that you die from a vaccination. But hey, I actually know people who have, okay? So we still give vaccinations, but we have to be realistic. So really rare, but in the most extreme cases, it may take daily encouragement for a number of years to finally integrate the void. However, as far as I have been able to see in my limited experience, and this is definitely anecdotal and not gold standard science or even, (laughs) it's probably not even uh, lead standard science. This is just anecdotal. Every case that I've encountered with enough time and support, they've actually ended up happy campers, integrated, just like the ones that don't have any trouble at all. Just took a lot of time and energy. Good. Thank you for clarifying that about the pit of the void or dark night. I do get a lot of questions about that, although I agree with you that it's extremely rare. Did what I say adequately address your needs? Oh, absolutely. I think part of the goal here is to put it out there into the world for exactly the reason that you mentioned, which is often just talking about it clearly immunizes the person from going off the rails in that direction. So I feel like it's a public service to have the discussion. (laughs) And it is really necessary because uh, you can't do bait and switch on people. The contemplative practice is meant to be in its classic form, a radical re-engineering of one's being, I think, probably the next step in evolution. (laughs) There's Homo sapiens, and then there's Homo sapiens variety Illuminatus. (laughs) It's a subspecies, and we're the early adapters, maybe. Maybe. I mean, it's ridiculous to claim to know the future, but it sort of makes sense when you look at the sweep of our evolution that this would be the next step. We get smart enough to correct our own evolutionary flaw. Well, as you know, Peter Bauman, whose music forms the theme music for this Deconstructing Yourself podcast, Peter Bauman and I wrote a whole book about the possible future awakening of the human species, not as a teleology, but just as a possibility. What was the name of the book? Uh, It's just called Ego. But before we go too far afield, I want to wrap back around. I felt it was really important to talk about the um, dark night possibilities, but in a way that was a long tangent off my original question, which is what do you feel teachers are getting wrong? And so I just wanted to make sure that we completed that thought. Right. I'm not sure I would use the word getting wrong, but I think I would use the phrase, um, there's room for improvement. (laughs) So I think that most people teaching mindfulness probably don't get the integrated picture that I was trying to present of what I think a modern mindfulness teacher should be. 
Well, yes, in a lot of very popular American Vipassana traditions, they're loath to even discuss awakening or enlightenment at all. Well, that's true. I would say there's something generic, and then there are two specific things. So the generic is, I don't think that they get the big picture and the interrelationships between all the pieces. And because of that, they may not realize the awesome potential of the M-word to change the course of human history. I say potential, right? We can't predict the future. So these issues that we're bringing up, to me, they're the kind of problems you like to have. As someone who grew up when Eisenhower was the president of the United States, as someone who was born while World War II was still happening, I'm that old, the notion that an import from Asia would have a substantive impact on the direction of North American culture is, well, it might not be quite up there with alien contact, but (laughs) it's way up there with improbable. (laughs) From the world that I was entrained into, and you do hold the world of your childhood, I'm still basically a little Jewish boy in 1950, (laughs) deep down. And I can tell you (laughs) that that little Jewish boy of 1950 United States cannot effing believe what's happening with this. And so it's really good. We have the problems you'd like to have, which is... You know, something is spreading very quickly, and what's spreading is essentially a good thing. So let's remember that this is the kind of problem you like to have. And I'm not concerned that it gets watered down as it gets popularized. I'm not really concerned about that. As long as we have the structures in place to make sure that the deeper stuff is readily available. As long as the noise doesn't completely overwhelm the signal. That's right. And as long as we strengthen the deeper signal with structures around the world, I think it's actually a good thing because lots of people being involved with the M-word on a superficial level means that the general level of concentration, clarity, and equanimity is slightly improving. And that slight improvement creates a basis. The more people get superficially interested means a larger basis for people to become deeply interested. So it doesn't concern me very much. As long as we're able to address and reach the people that get ready for the deeper stuff, I don't see any problem in having a very broad base. In fact, I think it's advantageous, big picture-wise, even if it's a broad and superficial base. So anyway, to get back to your question, if I were to say what could be improved or what's missing with many people who are teaching something that they're calling mindfulness, 
I would speak of a general concern, and then I would speak of two specific concerns. So the general concern is that I think a lot of people don't get the big picture, and they don't get the relationships between the parts of the big picture. What are the basic dimensions involved in mindfulness practice? What are the basic dimensions involved in human happiness? What are the basic dimensions involved in mindfulness-focused techniques? What is the relationship between the basic dimensions of mindful awareness, the basic dimensions of mindfulness techniques, and the basic dimensions of human happiness. All of these are connected in quite specific and natural ways. And someone that gets that big picture becomes what I call a competent modern mindfulness coach or competent modern mindfulness teacher. A competent modern mindfulness teacher, to repeat, knows how to start wherever the student may want to start and in an organic way eventually broaden and deepen the student's goals so that they include the deeper forms of happiness as well as the more superficial forms and they include all of the basic categories of happiness not just a few I like to think of the basic categories of happiness as coming under five rubrics, reduction of suffering, elevation of fulfillment, understanding yourself at all levels, improving behavior, or you could also say more skillful action, mastering your actions, and then service, outreach to others. So I call it relief, fulfillment, wisdom, mastery, and service. When I say broadening a person's concept of why they do this practice, it means to eventually encompass all five of those categories. And when I say deepening, I mean eventually encompass the things that you can't achieve without mindfulness and that turn out to be, in many ways, the most important forms of happiness. So... I would say that generically, I don't think that there's a clear appreciation of the basic dimensions of mindful awareness, the basic dimensions of the focus techniques, the basic dimensions of the goals, and how all those relate to each other in natural ways. I think many people are not crystal clear about that. This notion of the competent modern mindfulness coach being a device that transforms small happy into big happy is just my reworking of the traditional Buddhist notion of upaya, meeting people where they're at. Except in the past, the way upaya has been done in previous cultures, I don't think can hold a candle to what we're going to be able to do in the modern world. 
because the way it's been done in the past has been often rather superficial, sometimes ethically questionable, often related to superstition and hoodwinking people. And we don't have to do any of those things now in order to get people involved. Yeah, it's very fascinating how the West has developed a whole very wide spectrum of ways to help people be more fulfilled or more actualized in these more, let's say, worldly dimensions. And when you begin applying mindfulness from, quote, underneath that, going at the deep structures, the deep awakening, the integrating emptiness, and then start bringing that back through these already existing structures in our culture, it's not only unbelievably powerful and effective, but it touches massively more areas of life than these previous cultural methods had ever even imagined. Yeah. I mean, we are living in an age of, I have to come up with some sort of catchy phrase that expresses the notion of upaya on steroids. Or <laughs> How about upaya on steroids? <laughs> upaya on steroids. Well, that might be a little uh, off-putting to some people, but hey, what the heck. Maybe we can do a little better. Mega upaya? Mahopaya. The great <laughs> upaya. <laughs> Maha upaya. <laughs> well, no, there's got to be something. Let's see. Uh, Ati upaya. Uh, upaya beyond upaya. <laughs> you know, the problem with ati, Indic spirituality, whenever there's a state that some teacher claims, some other teacher puts the word ati in front, which means beyond, right? Or the equivalent thereof. For example, let's say that I say turiya is the ultimate. So turiya, you're very familiar with this, right? From Hinduism, yes. like the fourth, right? So I'm going to take yeah. that to mean enlightenment. And then I've heard teachers in the Hindu context claim to teach Turiyatita, okay, that which is beyond, beyond the, fourth. the fourth. And I swear to God, I have heard Turiyatita, okay, uh, <laughs> that which is beyond what is beyond the fourth. <laughs> okay, so you can always put Atita on post, there or post Ati. Postmodernism you know. here. Yeah, post postmodernism. You can always trump your um, spiritual competition, you know, by just throwing Ati on there or the equivalent thereof and saying, well, wherever those other guys took you, we take you to the next step. <laughs> and it is in the nature of the integers. That's established by the piano axioms that there's always a next. <laughs> there's always a successor, and it never ends. So we can play the PR escalation game on states, but maybe Upaya Tita. <laughs> there you go. Uh, upaya Tita. What is beyond Upaya? <laughs> and I can even offer you a candidate for Upaya Tita Tita. I'm waiting. Well, we're joking, but this might actually happen. Someone comes up with a biophysical, technological process that doesn't replace practice, but exponentially speeds it up. So you get 40 years of growth in four years, say. 
with a techno boost of some sort. And if that were to happen, then all of the wonderful things we've been talking about and all of the problematic things we have been talking about now go on steroids because we're now talking about possibly hundreds of millions of people getting into no self and emptiness. And oh my God, that would make a very, very interesting world. Okay, so getting back now to um, question. So I think if I had to point to something, you know, what's being missed? Well, I think broadly this big picture and how powerful the big picture is, is maybe not appreciated. That's sort of generic. Then there's two specific areas where I think there could be improvement. One is something you mentioned. So there's this last row in my happiness grid. So those are the deepest forms of happiness. And the center column, which is the wisdom or understand yourself at all levels, the last row in the central column is called understanding yourself at the deepest level. So understanding yourself at the deepest level is understanding yourself as no self or true witness or everything or nothing. It's integrated void uh, that we've been talking about. To me, that's understanding yourself at the deepest level. I think one of the problems with mindfulness teachers, and this is not just with people that may be superficially trained and working in a, quote, secular context. The problem that I'm about to describe is actually saliently present within many Buddhist teachers. And the problem is they don't want to deal at all with that aspect of happiness. They don't want to talk about it, and they don't want to orient people towards it. And I can understand that. Now, when you are saying uh, they don't want to point to that, you mean they don't want to talk about awakening? That's correct. You can call it awakening, you can call it enlightenment. Maybe a better word would be liberation. Or you can just call it the limiting case of understanding yourself. If we take understanding to be going deeper and deeper. So when I say limiting, maybe I confuse people. I'm using that in the mathematical sense. Yes. Uh, the limit of a sequence is where it eventually is pointing to. See, this is the whole thing about understanding the relationship between the, the forms of happiness. You need to be able to smoothly and naturally and effortlessly move from surface to depth. At the surface, you're going to have something that anyone is going to agree with. No one's going to disagree with. No one. No one on the planet. It doesn't matter whether they're right or left or a theist or an atheist. doesn't matter. You start with something that everyone can agree with. Oh, yeah, that's good. So I start with um, the notion of understanding yourself. 
one of the things that you can tell a student the first day without being weird or threatening. One of the things that mindfulness practice will help you with is understanding yourself better and at all levels. That seems appealing and non-threatening to anyone, I'm going to say. And if they want more, you can tell them more. What you mean? What's more? Well, there's understanding yourself that you might get by going to a therapist or a counselor or by just introspection, sort of looking at yourself, asking yourself questions about who you are and what you want and what you do. We'll call that understanding yourself at a surface psychological level. Does that make sense? I doubt that anyone's going to say that doesn't make sense. And the concentration, clarity, and equanimity are helpful for that. And that's why they make a good adjunct or potentiator for therapy. So understanding yourself at the personal level is something a person might go to a therapist for, or they might just look within. But in either case, if they have CC&E skills, they're going to be able to do that better. So it's legitimate to claim that understanding yourself at a surface psychological level is potentiated or aided by mindfulness. Then there's understanding yourself at a deeper level, which is what would be addressed by depth psychology or by actually what our ancestors would have called uh, entering the spirit world. It's part of shamanism. Some people might see angels, or some people might have certain archetypes or avatars that they relate to. Some people, when they look within, might get a sense that there's a sort of deep mind that is connected in some perhaps ill-defined way, what Jung would have called the collective unconscious. So the understanding of yourself that you achieve by going down to that level, well, mindfulness skills will allow you to do that in a healthy way. I still take that to be a psychological realm, but it's depth psychology. What Freud and Jung claimed to be able to touch So it does have a tradition in the West. It also has a tradition in Buddhism. It's called the Sambhogakaya. In Hinduism, it's called the Linga Sharira, the subtle body, uh, etc., etc. Then there's understanding yourself as a sensory system. That's early Buddhism, where you untangle the sensory strands and unblock and stop grasping. Now, in early Buddhism, that was the five skandhas, etc. But I use Occam's razor, and I use a simpler formulation, but it's the same basic idea. Inner, see, hear, feel is a system. When you fully untangle it, the somethingness of self goes away. So that's level number three of understanding yourself. But then, what's inner, see, hear, feel made out of? Well, the same thing that outer, see, hear, feel is made out of. It's all made out of the vibrant void. And that's understanding yourself at the deepest level. So I introduce enlightenment or liberation as simply something that's on a continuum with psychology. It's just 
okay, you understand yourself this way, now let's look a little deeper, now let's look a little deeper still, now let's really look deeply. So instead of making a big deal about the E word, I have it in there under a rubric or category that generically no one has any objection to, which is understanding yourself. So I've in some sense normalized enlightenment. It's just the deepest case of understanding yourself. And if you want to know what I mean by deep, I can tell you what I mean. I mean that each moment of conscious experience doesn't simply arise instantaneously. There, it takes 10 milliseconds or 50 milliseconds or a few hundred milliseconds or in some cases a few thousand milliseconds. That means a few seconds for it to go from the instant that the processing begins to the moment when you have a conscious experience. It has to work its way up, in many cases from the spinal column or from deeper ganglia through various processing centers and then finally sort of spills out on the surface of the cortex and we have a conscious experience. That takes time. Not a lot of time by human standards, but actually 100 milliseconds is an eternity by quantum physical standards. <laughs> yeah, and it's those layers of processing or what in our last conversation I often called pre-processing, but what's going on at those layers of processing? That's a great term, pre-processing. Yeah, obviously, it's so crucial to your experience of being a human being, but also it's those layers of pre-processing or processing of any experience that it seems like meditation is actually acting upon. You know, as you meditate over the years, at least in industrial strength, enlightenment-oriented meditation, you are reconfiguring those layers of processing pretty fundamentally. I like that term pre-processing. That gives me the word I was looking for. So there's pre-processing and then there's pre-pre-processing. And then there's pre-pre-pre-processing. Yes, right. However, this is not eternal regress, right? Because if you look at the natural numbers, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, there's no largest natural number, but there's absolutely a first natural number. There is a first process. There is the zero level. Okay. It doesn't go pre, 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 pre. It starts by an objective clock at a certain time. And then there's a process and another process and another process. And it percolates up to consciousness. Consciousness is probably a continuum, not a binary. But in any event, at some point, it's conscious. So, if we look at the deepest level of pre-processing, be it visual, auditory, somatic, be it inner or outer, or be it motor involved with motoric expression of body movement, speech, and thought, when we look at 
what the deepest level of pre-processing tastes like. They all taste the same. And they all look the same. They all feel the same. My experience of it is space effortlessly, simultaneously spreading and collapsing, creating a cleft wherein self and scene arise, a time-space volume. So it all tastes the same at the source, but also as your contact with the source gets clearer, you don't lose contact even as it's percolating up to consciousness. It's always surrounded by that. So the ten trillion somethings are connected to the one nothing through the two doings of expansion and contraction. So that's what it tastes like. So that's all I mean by understand yourself at the deepest level. And there are no doubt biophysical correlates of that deepest level. And a case could be made that enlightenment is simply the extension of awareness into the pre-processing, pre-pre-processing, and pre-pre-processing. Extension down into those levels as far as uh, it's possible to be conscious or somewhat conscious of them, and perhaps also helping them to function a little differently. Yeah, that's true. And that's what's so interesting. Because there's a dialectical process from a certain perspective, they always function perfectly. But from another perspective, their functioning can be improved. And I think we do both. I think we both see it as it is. And some teachers very much emphasize that. But I think we also change it to work better. Yeah, less resistance, less reactivity tends to quote, improve the functioning of those, that pre-processing. So to get back to your thing, this is a perfect example of what I mean by understanding how all the dimensions are related in a big picture. Yes. So the problem to get back to now the specifics is that many teachers, including many traditional Buddhist teachers, don't want to address the issue of what I'm going to call understanding yourself at the deepest level. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to encourage it. Now, I can understand a rationale for not talking about it and not encouraging it. I can understand why one may make that decision. You start talking about it and people develop a craving or they develop a fear or they develop a comparison mind or they blah, blah, blah. Okay, so yeah, I can see why you might not want to talk about it. But I still think we should talk about it and, quote, encourage it, but in the very gentle sense of the fact that we encourage any broadening and deepening of their paradigm of happiness. This is just part of that larger picture. But here's the thing that does a little bit frost my buns. Um, Only a little bit. To repeat, I can see not talking about it. I can see not encouraging it. But if you have a student that starts to move in that direction, 
to shut that down, that's a little bit frost my buns. And this is a story that I hear a lot. Yeah, me too. A lot. I was on a retreat with so-and-so. Then they're going to report something that is one of my standard windows. Maybe they got very significant flow. Or they had spaciousness experiences. Or expansion and contraction. Or oneness. Or a sense that there's a, a formless self. Or no self. Okay, one of the standard windows presents itself in a salient fashion. And the teachers shut it down. They said it doesn't mean anything. Just get back to your breath. Why are you trying to get somewhere? You're getting involved in grasping. Yeah. Why do you need to be special? And not only do they not point out the significance, not only do they not point out how to work with it, they actually, in the worst case scenario, fault the student for being interested in it. And what that does is it confuses the student. It misses nature's window of opportunity. And the student feels unheard and not understood because they know that they were experiencing something significant. So this sad story I hear a lot. Yeah, it's actually, sadly, quite common. So that a little bit frosts my buns, because it's the antithesis of how I go about teaching. I'm looking for the windows and walls. I talk about them. I say, here's what it means, and here's what to do with it. So there's that. This unwillingness to address what is essentially the, the central piece of Buddhism. You know, what's wrong with this picture? You don't know whether to laugh or cry. Or I think of the current internet meme, which is, you had one job. Oh, I haven't heard that. What does that mean? <laughs> you had to one uh, job and you couldn't fucking do it? or Right, yeah. You had one job and you fucked it up. <laughs> so that's specific point number one. What's specific point number two? That's specific one. Specific two is an inability. So there's a difference between an unwillingness and an inability. An inability to incorporate behavior change into the paradigm. So how do you bring in the issue of skillful action? If you're teaching in a modern mindfulness context, so what I imagine you're talking about here is the sort of teacher who is so focused on the spontaneous, natural state that any activity at all that would somehow interfere with that or hope to change what's just spontaneously arising in the perfection of the moment is seen to be something that we're trying to avoid. We're just going to be with everything exactly the way it is. That would be one end of the spectrum. But there's another end of the spectrum, which is that they actually do talk about the importance 
of ethics, morality, character. It's talked about, but it's talked about in a way that I think is not optimally skillful for modern mindfulness. So that sounds very abstract. I'll make it more specific. Essentially, there's two things that people are worried about with, quote, secular Buddhism. One is it's going to lose its spiritual clout. The other is that it's going to lose its ethical compass. I've already addressed my take on dealing with the spiritual clout part. What about the, quote, ethical compass? Well, I actually think that's very important. I think we should address it. But I think big picture-wise, in terms of reaching hundreds of millions of people in a wide range of cultures and political systems and covering the whole spectrum of philosophy and political ideology. If we want to really reach the bulk of this planet, I think we have a very interesting conundrum, which is how do you introduce the notion that mindfulness practice is not just about feeling better, and it's not even just about getting liberated or enlightened. It's also about carrying yourself in the world in a skillful way. It's about having admirable character. How do we introduce that in a way that sets up no barriers for truly large numbers of human beings? That's very tricky because each individual teacher And each individual organization has the right to encourage whatever politics or ethical standards they think they want to encourage. That's their business. If you want to make programs that sensitize you to white privilege, if you want to make that part and parcel of the Dharma for North America, hey, Be my guest. That's your business. But if we want to talk about the big picture of reaching large numbers of people all over the world, then we have to be really, really careful that we don't set up barriers that only let in certain kinds of people. So, for example, we don't want to make a Buddhism or a mindfulness practice in America that is only accessible and comfortable for left-wing liberals. That would be an example. Each individual teacher and each individual organization has the right to have whatever philosophy or politics or values they want to have. My job, (laughs) like, I only have one job, (laughs) (laughs) That's to save this planet. So individuals do what they do. But I'm saying if we want to formulate a big picture strategy of mindfulness and perhaps mindfulness with a techno boost, sort of pulling the bacon out of the fire at the last minute on this planet. If we want to formulate 
a strategy to facilitate that, which I do. That's my job. I only have one job. Then that big picture strategy cannot set up barriers to any significant specific group. And that gets very, very tricky because people are very, very entrenched in their notions of morality, politics, religion, philosophy, etc., etc. So, is there a way around this? That's the job. The job is to be smart enough to figure out a way that we can introduce the notion of becoming a better person without setting up barriers because of how we've defined better. But my idea for the big picture strategy, there shouldn't be anything in there that even remotely sets up a barrier for any major cohort of human beings, any major group of human beings. I may feel very passionate about certain issues, and it's likely that my passion in this regard probably aligns with many of the people that are listening to this program. But I would stick to generics if I'm listing things, general guidelines or suggestions. And even in that case, I would not lead with them. They would be part of a larger picture. So just as I introduce the notion of enlightenment by making it simply a certain form of understanding yourself, I would introduce the concept of skillful action as one of the main categories of happiness. People that know how to act skillfully and become happier and in a lot of different ways. So what do we mean by skillful action? Well, we're going to actually distinguish different levels of appreciation of skillful action. And we're going to play on the Buddhist meaning of the word skillful. Kushala in Sanskrit, kusala in Pali. So kushala originally meant skill in the sense of artistic performance. But then in Buddhism, it's widened to include what we would call character. So skillful actions are actions that show good character. The general guidelines for good character are the fourfold shila for everyone and the fivefold shila, which adds abstaining from uh, intoxicants. The fivefold shila applies to anyone in a recovery situation. The fourfold shila applies to everyone, all humans. Those are general guidelines. That's what I mean by general guidelines. However, as I say, instead of leading with those general guidelines, we're going to lead with the notion of skillful action or using mindfulness skills, concentration, clarity, equanimity, and mindfulness 
techniques, focus in, nurture positive, and such, using mindfulness skills and mindfulness techniques to improve your skillfulness in acting. And just as there were sort of four levels at which we can talk about understanding yourself. I thought it was five levels. No, there's five categories, relief, fulfillment, wisdom, mastery, and service. And each of those has four levels. I see. And level measures, in some cases it measures importance, but the main criterion for level is a little more subtle. I classify the happiness types based on how obvious they are to the average person. So you ask the average person in the street, what makes you happy? They're going to say, well, if only such and such wasn't happening. If only such and such would happen. If only I was an incredible guitar player or basketball player or sexual athlete, etc. But they might say something altruistic like donating to charity makes me happy. Things like getting rid of a negative situation, getting a positive situation in the, both in the objective world, things like understanding yourself psychologically, things like getting better at sports or professional skills, things like donating to charity that helps others. These are forms of happiness that anyone can understand. So they're on the surface. They're important doesn't mean they're not important. Not at all. It just means they're intuitive to everyone. The notion that you could escape into excruciating pain, the notion that a tiny pleasure could practically make you faint from pure satisfaction, the notion that at the deepest level you're a nothing that is connected to everything. The notion that the most important skills are character skills. They're more important than fun or even useful performance skills. These notions are not available to the average person. So just as we started with a non-threatening, universally inviting category of happiness called understand yourself. And then we say, oh, and by their way, there's all these levels, and here's how mindfulness skills and strategies apply. We open with the notion that everyone has aspects of their behavior that they would like to improve. At the most superficial level, that's playing a better game of tennis. Well, you know what? If we are willing to use the word skillful in that broad Buddhist sense, that actually fits. Okay, you want to improve your tennis game? Here, I'll show you how to do it. But everyone also has aspects of their habitual behavior that they want to change beyond the notion of skill being performance. There's a notion of skill relating to character. And 
Everyone has something that they want to change with regards to how they're carrying themselves in the world. I classify behavior change into eight categories, and it's a tree of porphyry. It's a, um, a binary classification. A behavior change related to ethics and character might be to stop doing something you're currently doing. That's uh, negative in the sense that you're stopping doing something. Or it could be positive in the sense that you begin doing something you should do. So broadly, behavior changes come under those two categories. There's do's and don'ts. Yeah. So there's start versus stop or less versus more. But also a behavior change might be something big, but it could also be something small. A behavior change might be something that you're committed to making, or it might be something you're merely willing to consider. So if you did the math on this, that's a sequence of three binary branchings. So that's two to the third equals eight categories of behavior change in the area of character, ethics, whatever you want to call it. So we introduce the notion of behavior change. That's what we lead with. Not the notion of the guidelines. The guidelines enter in. They enter in in another place. And by the way, other things also enter in along with the guidelines. They're needed to supplement or they may be needed to supplement. But that's a different conversation. I don't want to lose the vector that I'm on right now. So instead of leading with, you should do this, you shouldn't do that, we lead with, okay, here's eight kinds of behavior change. Mindfulness will help you. I don't need to know what the behavior is in specific, unless you want to tell me, but you can keep that confidential. But I do need to know which of these eight categories it comes under. That's all the information a modern mindfulness teacher needs to lead a person in behavior change. They just need to know which of the eight broad categories they're working on. And then you formulate a strategy based on mindfulness, skills and techniques. You formulate a strategy and you give them the assignment to apply that strategy and then you follow up on the behavior change and you support them. To me, that's how you get the foot in the door. Start there. Now we've introduced the notion that we can change behavior with this practice. And then we just build on that. And we haven't excluded anyone. We haven't set up any major barriers. I just want to say one other thing, which is it's okay if a mindfulness teacher doesn't know how to lead a person to and through liberation. As long as they've got on speed dial one or more people that do. And it's also okay if a mindfulness teacher doesn't know how to lead people through the pit of the void, dark night, whatever. Once again, as long as they have on speed dial people who do know how to do that so that they know to look for the 
really significant windows. They know the signs that the person is moving towards liberation. And they know the signs of incipient dark night. And if they don't know how to deal with it, that's okay as long as they immediately bring on a competent specialist. Yeah, they know how to refer such a person to the specialist. That's how it works in medicine. We're talking about the modern world. All right, Shinzen, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to answer that question in such detail. How fascinating it is what can happen to a Jewish kid from 1950s Los Angeles. You give them enough decades to follow their interests. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource, and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. 
You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>